If you follow the news closely, again, I'm sorry to say that today, in the year of 2023, we're not only looking at the war in Ukraine right now, but also given the fact the nation of Israel is also suffering from another major devastation. Now, here's the question we need to ask. What is happening today to the world? Does that mean that war is the only solution to stability or when we come to political disagreement or territorial dispute? Is there any possibilities rather than war that we can actually bring peace or at least the agenda of bringing peace back on the table? Well, again, if you follow our show that previously we've been talking about so much regarding the country of North Korea. Now, make no mistake. Just because, again, I said it one more time, we don't hear a lot of dates from the country and it doesn't mean that, that we should overlook this country and also we should overlook the matter regarding international security. Again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker and who is Jenny Town. Again, Jenny Town, it's a senior fellow at the Stimson Center and she's the director of Stimson's 38 North program. And recently, the Jenny testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee regarding the security on the Korean Peninsula. Well, Jenny, and welcome back to The Missing Piece. Thanks, well, it's great to be back. Well, Jenny, I want to get to the question right away. Again, as we mentioned before, recently that you testified again before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee regarding the security on the Korean Peninsula. Now, I happen to have the transcript in my hands, and I want to get started with the first question. One thing that when we're looking at the war, particularly we're looking at the war in Ukraine and also looking at this relationship between Russia and Ukraine and also this, should I say, this bilateral ties between China and Russia, something, quite a new phrase that came up very often is called new Cold War. And also this is something that you also mentioned during your testimony as well. Jenny, help us with better understanding what is the new Cold War that we're looking at today? And also, why is that related to North Korea and also the international security? Your thoughts? So, you know, it, I don't think we're officially in a new Cold War, um, but it's definitely the direction that we're moving right now when mm. we talk about great power competition um, and especially like U.S.-China relations, the amount of... Um, emphasis on the competitiveness, on the adversarial relations, um, does create rifts um, that is pushing towards more of like block on block formation. Mm. Um, it's again, it's not official. <laughs> um, and there's no official like uh, alignments within that yet. Um, but it is a framework that, for instance, the North Koreans have really embraced. Mm. So, you know, this idea that we're moving towards democracies versus non-democracies um, and where North Korea falls in that, of course, is on the undemocratic side of the equation. Um, and because of that, um, it does create greater cover for the North Koreans and greater political space for them to maneuver. Because if we're now, if we're now breaking into these kinds of blocks, um, it means that, you know, that on the undemocratic side of the equation, 
um, they need to build also reciprocal alliances to what the U.S. has, for instance, on the democratic side of the equation. So as U.S., South Korea, Japan, trilateral security cooperation grows, and as um, South Korea and Japan embrace and, and integrate more into NATO, bringing Europe more directly into East Asian regional security affairs, um, you know, the Chinese are on the other side looking at who are their security partners. And, mm. and because of that, um, there's greater alignment now between um, China, Russia, and North Korea, even when North Korea and Russia are taking actions that might go against Chinese interests. Mm. Jenny, I remember, if I'm not mistaken, last time when you and I, we had a conversation that was prior to Kim Jong-un's visit to Russia, and again, you and I, we talk about that what would be the possibilities uh, between Russia and also North Korea. We're looking at this diplomatic relationship and we're also we're looking at this military partnership. And most importantly, it's the resources exchange. Now, again, I want to go back to something that you mentioned during the testimony. You said, and I quote, the biggest obstacle to resuming negotiation about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula it's Pyongyang's attitude towards nuclear weapon programs has fundamentally changed. Now, help us again with a better analysis. What are the changes that we're looking at today? We're still dealing with the whole Kim Jong-un dynasty. We're still dealing with the threat or possible threat from North Korea. But what would be some of the fundamental changes we're looking at from Pyongyang's attitude towards the nuclear weapon programs or the nuclear weapons? Well, historically, North Korea has always talked about its nuclear program as conditional. Um, it always used the phrases like, as long as the U.S. maintains its hostile policy, if the U.S. maintains its hostile policy, um, that's why they need nuclear weapons. Mm. Um, which really did sort of leave the door open to negotiations. Um, it wasn't as solidified of a decision, even though they had started to put it in the Constitution and even though they talked about it being the treasure sword. Um, the, the actual public narrative, the actual you know, rhetoric that they used um, still left room for other choices. Um, what we saw after 2019, after the Hanoi summit, um, was, you know, these attitudes really start to shift. Mm. And Kim Jong-un really um, expressed a lot of doubt that the U.S.-North Korea relationship could actually change. Um, and we've seen a lot of changes in that rhetoric of like, you know, instead of banking on the idea that relations can change and that will help improve the economic environment. Instead, you know, Kim Jong-un talks a lot about building an economy more resilient to a persistently hostile external environment. Um, and on the nuclear program, we've seen in recent years, um, as of September last year, when North Korea released its um, new nuclear law that mm. actually lays out, you know, some strategy and doctrine of how it thinks about the potential use of nuclear weapons. Um, we also saw a lot of rhetoric about um, a moment had passed, a line had been crossed, and, uh, and the way that it talked about its nuclear program now, the way that it does talk about its nuclear program now is not conditional anymore. 
Mm. Um, they talk about being a responsible nuclear weapon state. Um, they talk about, you know, the, the time for bargaining is over. They talk about um, the longevity of the program. It's here to stay. It's for self-defense purposes. Um, it's for, you know, that it, that it serves a particular security purpose now, um, not just uh, with, without that conditionality, right? Mm. And so because of that, it means if we still want to try and pursue denuclearization, um, everything is harder now mm. because the the idea that the the North Koreans the idea that they think they can get something for it or the the idea that they're willing to bargain for it um, is is so much more difficult mm. now um, and that means the price is going to be higher the demonstration, um, the benefits are going to have to be higher, that if we want them to do it, we have to be more proactive in that discussion, because it's not a decision that they want to make, it's not a decision that they will make easily. Um, and it would require a very, you know, again, a, a very fundamental shift in their own domestic thinking and domestic rhetoric about their nuclear program now. Jenny, let's follow up with what you just shared with us. How much do you think that from our perspective, we really understand the modern day, not just about the country of North Korea, we're particularly talking about this mentality and also this leadership of Kim Jong-un. If I'm, a, if I'm not mistaken, I believe recently, um, should I say, uh, a brand new book that came out and actually described another significant person who's rather close to Kim Jong-un, which is his sister. And again, you and I, we had a similar conversation before. So from your perspective, how much do you think today that are we actually dealing with the country or we are actually trying to dealing with both? So in other words, not only the country, but also with Kim Jong-un and also with Kim Jong-un's sister, because it seems like the sister and Kim Jong-un are the barriers to really for any international countries to, to creep through or to really break down in order to understand the motivation or understand this political ambition behind this. So again, this is something that you also mentioned um, in your testimony is to say it's insecure country among political, economic and military giants. So who are we dealing with or, or is it too much for us to, to bite off at this moment? I mean, it is a dictatorship. So you have to deal with Kim Jong-un and, and Kim Jong-un can make the decisions mm. um, of how the country moves forward. But certainly there's going to be some pressures on him from society. And it's something that, you know, um, the pressure is still there. It doesn't manifest in the same ways it does in other countries where you have active civil society. But um, there is still a pressure a pressure to perform. It is still a pressure to meet his goals. Mm. The kind of, you know, public persona that he's tried to cultivate is someone who can set goals and get things done. Um, and so during the pandemic, of course, uh, that was a very difficult task, especially on the economic side, because it's driven by circumstances that he couldn't control. And I think that is largely why you saw such an emphasis on the military side of the development equation um, over the past couple of years, because it was the one thing that they had some confidence 
um, that they could have success in, regardless of what else is going on in the world. Um, so, you know, while there was no progress on the economic side, while there was food insecurity in the country because, the, you know, like they've been isolated for so long, um, at the same time, you know, when it comes to the five-year plan and all the goals that they set in 2021 at the Eighth Party Congress, the military side continues to move forward. Mm. They can build weapons. They can build missiles. They can build it with a certain modicum of success, a certain expectation of success. And that way, you know, when they talk about, um, you know, the... in. W- Last year, when they talked about, you know, after each missile, it was about how we're on track with the plan. Um, You didn't hear that on the economic side of the equation. Mm. Um, Whereas now, you know, you you do see Kim Jong-un in his last speech. He did talk about how, yes, they've they've made great successes on the military side of the goals that were set for um, this five year period. Um, but now the most urgent, and he, he mentioned the most urgent priority for the country now is on the economy. Mm. So, you know, we are dealing with Kim Jong-un. Um, and Kim Jong-un does have, again, pressures to perform. But at the end of the day, you know, if those pressures become too much, he can also clamp down on society, right? Mm. It isn't the kind of civil society that's going to rise up and protest and, you know, have demonstrations in the streets. Um, but there is still some social contract there and there's still some pressure on him um, if he wants to be the sort of benevolent leader or wants to portray himself as the benevolent leader there is still pressures on him to succeed and to perform and to to make good on on the the goals that he does set for the country jenny what about his sister by the way again going back to the question i asked you before that we know that Kim Jong-un today is still the ruler for the country. But meanwhile, the sister is not going anywhere. I mean, again, previously, you and I, we had discussions regarding her attitudes that reacted to the United Nations. And also, uh, we're looking at that her as a consultant or as, again, as an ideal partner help the brother to guide the country and also uh, mention that this joint military exercise between U.S. and also South Korea at this moment. So again, we, we can't ignore the presence of this woman. So how much do we understand that and how concerning is her presence? I mean, she's she's not running the country by right. any means. She is the sister. She is a confidant. Um, from what we can tell so far from their interactions, you know, she's a useful political figure for him mm. where she does carry the Kim family name. Um, she can be used in ways to convey messages um, that give them greater gravity than if it's like from the foreign minister, for mm. instance. Um, but at the same time, she's not him. Mm. So, you know, she can she can deliver the harsh messages and still give him the plausible, you know, plausible deniability, right? Mm. He can still come out and make a different decision. He can still come out and reverse decisions where it wasn't reversing his decision, but it's reversing things that she said. And we saw that back in um, 2020 um, when she was leading the campaign, criticizing the South Koreans when they um, uh, demolished, for instance, the inter-Korean liaison office. Mm. Um, and she had talked about, you know, she was 
expressing anger. She was talked about a, a potential military campaign at that point in time. Um, and he very quickly came in and stopped everything. And we heard nothing about it again. Mm. So it's not like she's directing him, but more, again, she's sort of the, the useful political figure to test out ideas, to express more harsh rhetoric without him having to do it, but still having greater gravity um, than, you know, other political figures within the North Korean political infrastructure. Mm. Jenny, let's talk about the solutions. Again, we're looking at someone, we're looking at a country that's, number one, is isolated away from the world. And also that you're right, it's uh, worth continuing this relationship or we try to rebuild what we call diplom a diplomacy with North Korea. But again, something that you mentioned in the report is to recognize acts of goodwill and reciprocate, and specifically reciprocating North Korean acts of goodwill can potentially create small windows of opportunities to reopen channels of communication and help identify ways to de-escalate tensions, end quote. Now, Jenny, reciprocity works. And again, reciprocity, um, I would say, I want to be careful, have been one of the effective strategies, particularly from the U.S. perspective, and not only just dealing with some country like North Korea, but also previously, or in the historical sense, many other countries in the Middle East. But when it comes to reciprocity for North Korea, what are we referring to, by the way? So in other words, reciprocating North Koreans' acts of goodwill what goodwill that you're referring to? And also, how do we know that from the North Korean perspective, they're going to equally appreciate the good gesture or the sincerity from the U.S. or from any other countries? What are you trying to explain right there? There's no way to guarantee that they will perceive something as you know, good enough or perceive something the way that we want them to. Mm. The, the reality is, it's like, look, North Korea is not isolated from the world. We are isolated from North Korea. In the U.S., we are isolated mm. from North Korea. They have cut us off. Mm. Um, but they are still actively engaging other countries. Obviously, China, Russia, um, but a number of other countries, especially, you know, these days in, as they reopen, re-embracing, you know, European relations. Um, they've worked very hard to cultivate relations in, you know, in Africa and Southeast Asia, um, in South America, they just signed a new um, educational exchange program with, you know, universities in Mexico, mm. right? They're not isolated. Um, but we right now have no channels of communication into them. And the only, the only real messaging that we have to them these days um, is deterrence messaging. Mm. And so, you know, the North Koreans have very clearly said they recognize power for, they'll respond power for power and goodwill for goodwill. Um, and so we are, we're always very quick to respond to any kind of negative moves that mm. North Korea, you know, whether it's missile testing or um, military drills or military parades or, you know, sanctions, evasion, like we have ways we always respond, sometimes even excessively so. Um, what we don't do, though, is recognize when North Korea does something that is, you know, a goodwill gesture. Um, we, we, tend to, we tend to be very skeptical 
of all of those goodwill gestures. Um, and instead of responding to them in kind, um, in we we tend to dismiss it like mm. oh it's a root. so it's you know we 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 read into it the most sinister intent um, and so for instance the the most recent thing you know despite everything that's going on in U.S. DPRK relations right now um, you know North Korea recently uh, released and returned um, private Travis King mm. no incident um, you know it, it wasn't uh, an it wasn't a negotiated deal where they're expecting to get something from it. Um, but they did release him. They did return him um, without incidents. There was a lot of, you know, behind the scenes diplomacy that went on um, with our Swedish partners and the Chinese were very instrumental in it as well. Um, but it's the best possible outcome for everyone who was involved in that situation. Um, and it, it could have very easily turned into a messy you know, sort of diplomatic um, problem, but instead it was it was handled in in sort of the best possible way. Mm. Um, and those are the kinds of moments where, if we can recognize that, despite everything else that's going on, if we can recognize that, if there is something we can do that would, you know, show some kind of reciprocal goodwill in that equation, um, that we could, you know, that it could create. Um, some momentum towards rebuilding a channel of communication. There's, again, there's no guarantee. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not like run out and lift sanctions and, you know, necessarily give North Korea something for it. But it could be as simple as, for instance, elevating the role of the special representative from part time to full time. Mm. It could be, you know, lifting the travel ban on U.S. citizens um, traveling to North Korea. It's still up to them whether they issue visas or not. Mm. Um, but it, it clears some paths. It, it sort of takes actions that would demonstrate that we can have a different relationship um, and 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 really demonstrate that in, in, in a concrete way um, where it could spark some interest in saying, hey, if we can have a different relationship, maybe it's worth coming back and trying to talk about at least something. It's not going to be nuclear issues up front. Let, let me ask one more question before we move on to the last part. When we talk about the goodwill gesture, does that mean that U.S. and South Korea should reduce the joint military exercise? Because again, this is something that you mentioned. I don't really mean that reduction of the joint military exercise. But again, we understand that North Korean government can be very easily ticked off by this joint military exercise. And again, um, the more practice we see and the more missile testing, the reaction we're going to see from North Korea. So what do you think? So does that mean in order to build the bridge, in order to have this uh, reciprocity we should definitely, uh, or U.S. should be careful regarding this joint military exercise uh, between U.S. and South Korea. What are you thinking? Well, I think that there's ways to deal with this, um, that it isn't just all or nothing, right? Military exercises can be, you know, adjusted in scale and scope and frequency. Um, and what we see right now is sort of the largest scale, the largest scope, the most frequent we've kind of ever done. Mm. Um, and so not only are we doing large scale live fire military exercises back to back months on end, 
Um, but in the meantime, in the moments where we don't have exercises scheduled, if North Korea does missile tests, we add in more drills. Mm. Um, and so, you know, this kind of messaging, um, while, you know, may be warranted given North Korea's activities, um, is not necessarily helpful in in the broader, you know, signaling back and forth. We don't have to respond to every single thing that North Korea does with more military exercises. And especially given the idea that, you know, it doesn't intimidate North Korea, it doesn't deter North Korea from doing more activities, testing more, doing more drills. And instead, um, as both sides sort of try to look like they can't be intimidated by each other, it actually eggs on greater exercises. So I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have exercises. We have scheduled exercises. There are some that are actually for military need, but there are some that are being done that are reactive um, and meant for actual, you know, political purposes, right? Mm. And, you know, there are other ways to signal um, that, you know, that we're, we don't approve of what North Korea is doing rather than military exercises all the time. Jenny, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking you the last question. Now, recently, the footage shows that North Korea renovates a long abandoned factory in quest to address food shortages. And again, as you mentioned before, this is not something new to the world. But based on the North Korean analysis shows that this is a bigger step for Kim Jong-un or for this current North Korean government really start to address this issue. Now, from your perspective, how concerning is the food shortages today? And does that mean that Kim Jong-un is going to ask help from countries such as Russia or China? And again, we're looking at this trilateral relationship beyond political interest and beyond uh, uh, international uh, uh, barriers. Your final thoughts? I mean, the, the food situation is serious enough where Kim Jong-un himself has acknowledged that there's a food crisis, especially last year. Um, and once they started opening up the border and started reinstating trade, you know, early shipments, the kinds of goods that they were getting, a lot of foods and medicines. Um, and even in deals that we've seen, in early deals that we've seen with the Russians, there's a lot of food stuffs that are coming in, especially wheat. Um, so, you know, like North Korea has has their domestic food production has never been enough for the entire country to meet the entire um, dietary needs of the population. Mm. Um, but there's always been supplemented and especially in the years since the famine, it's been supplemented by trade and it's been supplemented by, you know, goods in the markets where people have not been so dependent on the government and on rations and on domestic production because they can buy stuff in the markets. Um, over the pandemic, since they, they were isolated and they did cut off trade and there weren't those imported foodstuffs coming in, it, it's been a much more um, critical situation and, mm. and something that we've seen, you know, the North Koreans really struggle with, especially within the last year. Um, I don't think it rises to the level of what we saw in the 1990s of, in the in the famine era. Mm. Um, certainly, you know, now with trade resuming, and I think that was part of the pressure to resume trade and reopen those borders was because of, you know, the, the economic situation, the food situation really did get to a point where they needed to rebuild ties. 
Um, so, you know, I, I think this is something that the North Koreans um, will work to remedy. We've seen a lot of focus on agricultural reform. Mm. Um, we've seen, you know, again, in, in some of the early deals, a lot of like food aid coming in, food being imported. Um, and so it is something that, you know, the, the regime is working to address. Um, certainly, it, it, there will still be disparity on, on who gets what early on in the process. Um, but, uh, but it isn't famine level um, food crisis mm. that we're dealing with. But it, but it is a serious, definitely it is serious in scope and scale. Well, Jenny, again, with everything you said, regarding the war in Israel and also the war in Ukraine. But that doesn't mean that we need to overlook the country of North Korea. Again, you mentioned that the country is not isolated. Now, from the U.S. perspective or for any other country's perspective, maybe we just need to have this open dialogue and also we need to build or rebuild a better diplomacy. But most importantly is we need to understand the right path continue to engage with the country and also to engage with the leader for the country. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Jenny Town. Again, Jenny Town, it's a senior fellow at the Simpson Center, and she's the director of Simpson's 30A North program, and her expertise is in North Korea, USDPRK relations, and USROK alliance, and Northeast Asia regional security. Jenny, it's always been a pleasure speaking to you. Again, thank you so much for your contribution. Of course, after reading the report that um, you testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee regarding the security on Korean Peninsula, indeed help us with a better understanding from this diplomatic and also from this international perspective. But again, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for doing this.